pops or today's farm green podcast is going to be pretty relaxed. We can talk about whatever you guys want to talk about, go whatever direction you guys want to go. And, uh, and in typical Rick Clark fashion, we'll start off by saying here, giddy up, let's go. Rick hit me up. Um, he's in DC right now, Rick and his wife, Carol. Um, Rick actually testified in front of the house ag committee yesterday. They had the first ever um, hearing on soil health and Rick was, uh, was selected to go and represent big deal, really, really big deal. Um, so it, it went well. The recording um, is uh, it's on YouTube. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll find that and get that in the chat for everybody. Really interesting. Um, you know, just high level conversations, of course, but interesting, you know, to be able to kind of hear what uh, you know, kind of hear what the Congress folks were asking about and, uh, and hearing what the conversation was leading towards. So, you know, Rick's message overall, of course, is, Hey, as we're talking about improving our soil health, we need to be, you know, talking about these principles and, and fitting the principles into the context of your individual operation. That's super critical. And, um, and I think really the, the key thing, you know, with, with this entire movement is you've got to factor all of these soil health principles into the context of your farm. So, um, but before we get too far, uh, for those that were expecting Rick um, here, uh, he might come on at some point. He called a little bit ago. Um, like I said, uh, Rick is out there in DC right now, pushing the message and, and trying to help our elected officials understand what's really needed here in this regenerative ag movement. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Mitchell Horam. I'm a seventh generation farmer here in Southeast Iowa. And uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Continuum Ag. We're a soil health data intelligence company. Been working close with Rick and the Farm Green crew, uh, crew for, for a couple of years now. Um, I was on as a guest here for the podcast maybe a couple months ago now, um, kind of uh, early into when when Rick and Rachel got these got these going. So excited to be able to help and and um, you know participate here and fill in for Rick while he's out of town. So. Um, I'll have maybe a couple different, uh, couple different, um, guests and stuff coming on throughout the evening. And like I said, we can just kind of talk, uh, about whatever you guys want to talk about. So, but, um, Rick's, uh, yeah, the link, yeah, somebody definitely, um, somebody definitely get the, uh, get the link and stuff queued up. Ed. Yeah. Great question. The trip. Um, a variety of different things, you know, that I can hit on and stuff here tonight. And, but, uh, I definitely don't need this being a, you know, a whole, uh, whole segment on me just rambling about all kinds of stuff. Although, um, for those of you on here that, that know me, you know, I definitely, uh, definitely would and, and could just ramble here all night about this stuff. Um, I get pretty excited about it, but, um, but yeah, let's hit on the, um, the trip and stuff here. So what Ed's talking about is uh, last week I was over in Europe, uh, specifically in the Netherlands, um, spent some time in Belgium as well. This is my first trip ever uh, over to Europe, besides just flying through on my way to South Africa, uh, was there for basically a full week and a full week with no luggage. Uh, I finally just got word today that they did find my luggage. So it's, a, it's good. It's not lost forever. And uh missing my cowboy boots that are, that are in my luggage. So I need those back, but, um, but went over there, it would have been last Sunday, the fourth and the original. Um, yeah, thanks. There's the, uh, the link 
in the chat for everybody to check out Rick's uh, Rick's hearing. There's a variety of other folks that were that were in on it too. So give that a listen. I haven't been able to listen to the full thing yet. Um, watch Rick's part, um, and but I didn't catch uh, all the rest of it yet. We've been been out in the field and everything. But anyway, back to uh, the Europe stuff. Um, Continuum Ag was selected to as a finalist for a. Uh, a conference called the Regenerative Ag and Food Systems Summit. And this Regenerative Ag and Food Systems Summit, I believe it was their first ever um, of this kind. It's put on by a company that does research and they put on lots of these different events, but it's my understanding at least that it's the first that um, was done in the food and uh, especially the regenerative ag and farming space. The event, um, like I said, they had a pitch competition for startup companies and we were selected as uh, one of the top five finalists. We were the only company from the U.S. Um, there was a German group there, uh, a group from Japan, a group from the U.K., a uh, couple others, I, I forget. But um, we were selected by a group of, of judges. And those judges you know, selected the top five. And I went all the way over there to this conference to give a five-minute pitch uh, share our story and then took five minutes of Q and a, that was it. Um, but looking at the, the lineup of the speaker sponsors and all that, it was a, it was a good place to be. And just going over there to speak and be in the competition was a good excuse to say, Hey, let's, let's go. Let's take the opportunity go over there, share our story, but rub elbows with some of the other top folks in the food and ag space. So, um, groups like, you know, there's a lot of the the VPs and very higher up people within some of the big food and ag companies, you know, including Danone and Unilever and uh, Cargill. Um, I chatted with the group that owns um, Jim Beam, the the bourbon company. So that was kind of cool. They're a Japanese group, um, a wide array of different folks. I don't know if there was maybe 250 people there, 300 people there. So nothing massive, but still pretty good sized group. What was interesting is that when I was getting to the event on the first day, <clears throat> there was a group of protesters outside of the hotel. Okay. And this event was at a really nice hotel, downtown Amsterdam. And outside of the event, there was a group of protesters, maybe eight or 10 of them or so. I didn't, I didn't really look, but they were, had a big banner and they were blocking the front entrance to the hotel. And they were chanting about um, end, um, end conventional agriculture and, and big, you know, something like that End conventional ag, I think is what they were, what they were talking about. And at first I was really confused. I was like, guys, this is a regenerative ag conference. Like we're kind of talking about, you know, ending the big ag conventional commercial way that we've been doing it and, and go down this regenerative path and become more sustainable and, and do things, you know, to, protect the soil and protect water and, and use less synthetic inputs and improve nutrient density and all that. And these guys were, were protesting about, you know, anti-conventional ag. So at first I was like, I think these guys are at the wrong event or something. And, uh, but, um, you know, come inside and, and they had us go in a, a side door to get in. No big deal. Um, it was closer to the event and stuff anyway. And, you know, kind of what they were, what they were mad about, at the root was some of the big sponsors for this event was Syngenta and Unilever and some of these big companies, like I said, big food and ad companies. And they're protesting because they feel like 
the Regentivac movement and the sustainability push and whatnot is being greenwashed and that these companies are not are not doing enough, that the progress isn't being made fast enough. And um, and they were mad about it and they were were protesting and blocking the door and had themselves like taped to the door and stuff so that people couldn't get into this event. So, um, you know, so I see it kind of both ways where it's like, guys, I mean, these are some of the biggest food and ag companies in the world. And they are saying, hey, we need to figure out how to be more regenerative. And we got to figure out how to go this route. Yeah. is Do I wish it was going faster? Of course. Do I wish there was more progress being made? Of course. Like, but um, this stuff isn't going to change overnight. And, uh, and there's very few folks that are going down this path. You know, their um, most recent census anyway, there's only 4% of farms in the U.S. that are using cover crops today and only about 30% using no-till. And, um, you know, there's lots of other ways to be regenerative, of course, but those, those are just a couple metrics that I like to point to. And uh, we got a long way to go, of course, but we're early into this journey and, and making progress. But anyway, so I thought it was interesting that, uh, that they were there and, um, and voicing their opinions and, and whatnot. Um, definitely handled differently than, uh, than how things are handled in the States that, you know, everyone's got, of course, a right to free speech and to voice their opinion and whatnot. But these guys were, were on this, you know, private property, uh, the cops were there and they weren't doing anything about it to get them, you know, onto the sidewalk or get them on the street, get them in the public area where of course, everybody's free to do what they want. Um, that was not the case over, over there. Like these guys were taped to the front door and like directly, you know, um, you know, messing with this nice hotels business and they're just common, you know, common going, uh, clients. And, uh, uh, I'm sure a lot of the folks that were there, not for the conference, were like, "This is odd. What's going on here?" But anyway, um, keeping things moving. So the uh, spoke of the event, the the folks that were in the room actually voted on the winner of the competition, and, and we won. So that was fun and cool to be voted on by by those that were there, saying, "Hey, we know that the how to for regenerative ag is really important, and we need data tools and we need systems." to track soil health and to, uh, you know, to be able to make sure that farmers have the tools that they need to implement these programs. So that was huge. Um, it was a great, a great time. Like I said, a lot of, of really great people. And there's some interesting conversations still ongoing coming out of that event. Uh, for a lot of the rest of the week, um, spent a lot of time with Rabobank. Um, we've been working on some project with Rabobank for a couple of years now. And their um, global headquarters is is in Utrecht, with which is about a half hour, uh, maybe 20, 25 minute um, train ride from Amsterdam down to Utrecht. Spent a lot of time there and got a lot of interesting things happening with those guys. So, uh, but that's top secret, of course. So, um, but no, not really. It's It's been an interesting ride. And, and to me, you know, my mission is to help as many farmers as possible understand this soil health message and to understand how they can implement regenerative ag and be more profitable, be more resilient, provide better outcomes to feed the world and, and do it in a more sustainable manner. So working with channel partners and working with companies, big and small farms, big and small and, and all over the world, you know, that's how we're, we're able to attain our mission and um, 
you know, working with some of these big companies that can really create change and that want to do stuff. They just don't know exactly how they don't know how to help farmers to implement regenerative ag systems. They don't know exactly what metrics they should be tracking. They don't know exactly what definitions there should be. They don't know what metrics they should track to show progress and, and uh, to track towards success. Um, and, And there's, there's lots of different ways to do it is the problem. There's lots of different metrics that you could show in terms of successfully implementing regenerative ag. And um, because there's so many different metrics, we don't know exactly which ones are going to really matter to the end consumer and to the taxpayer and to the policymakers and to the brands and stuff. We don't really know exactly what the core key winning metrics are going to be yet. So at this point, you know, we try to collect more data than what's maybe absolutely needed um, to be able to tell the story, be able to show that we're making progress and uh, be able to keep everybody moving in the right direction. So, um, but been interesting working with them. Um, another big update um, kind of along those lines of, of working with, well, maybe to wrap up the, the Europe deal, um, you know, was uh, the, a lot of ongoing conversations and stuff happening with those folks. And, and uh, next is they'll be coming over here uh, looking forward to getting back over to, to Europe again, um, especially when I can take my wife and daughter and stuff next time. And, and uh, we'll go, go tour around a little bit. This time it was, it was pretty well just business. And uh, I saw a lot of little farms and stuff while, while out on the train, the average farm over there in, in uh, the Netherlands is something like 26 hectares or something like that. So like barely 50 acres is the average farm size. The, country of the Netherlands is half the size of the state of Iowa. But in the state of Iowa, we have about 3 million people. And in the Netherlands, they have about 17 and a half million people in half the size of the state of Iowa. So very cramped together. Saw a lot of bicycles, not very many cars, definitely no pickup trucks and uh, rode the rode the train a lot. And I only got lost once. So I thought that was, that was a win, but um. Okay, so with some of these different companies and stuff, one of the things I want to make sure that everyone on here is is aware of is these climate smart commodity grants. Okay, the uh, the winners were just announced yesterday. The climate smart commodity grants was an initiative that was pushed out by the USDA and uh, Secretary Vilsack. Uh, they pushed it out maybe in April or so of this year, maybe end of end of March, first um, of April, somewhere in there, earlier this spring. And the USDA put out a, a call for, for grant-funded projects under the, the term of climate-smart commodities. And they're trying to scale these climate-smart practices and climate-smart commodities. And they put out a, a prize bucket of a billion dollars to do it. And uh, they, they said, companies, come in and apply. Um, and you can apply for anywhere between $5 million to $100 million worth of funding. You can have projects that are up to five years in length, and uh, and we'll we'll take the we'll take the uh, submissions all the way up till like six or seven weeks from now. It was a pretty quick turnaround time, just a couple of weeks. And uh, we put in one of the one of the applications. Um, we applied for a, a project where we would be looking at defining the annual carbon footprint of an acre. And then therefore we could quantify the carbon footprint of the commodity or the product coming off of that acre. 
because what I really want to get to is what is the carbon footprint of a bushel of my corn or my soybeans or my rye or what have you? I want to know what is the end of the day, what's the carbon footprint of my production? And if I had that data, I could better tie into the supply chain and maybe be able to create additional value if my, my grain is low carbon or maybe it's carbon negative, maybe it's, it's carbon negative uh, or carbon neutral, uh, but we don't know yet. The data tools are not necessarily there. And some of the practices that we do on our farm are they're way beyond the current models and the current tools of today. And uh, we need to expand those tools and expand the calculations so that each of us here and uh, all the farmers that we all work with, uh, we need better tools so that we can all better understand exactly what is our climatic impact. And from there, of course, it's not just about carbon, it's about water quality, it's about water efficiencies, return to fertility, um, nutrient density, lots of different stuff that that can happen. But the big push, you know, and with these grants was was about carbon. So we have uh, we put in for 9.5 million um, is is what we were looking at. And um, to be able to get this going on a pretty big acreage, um, but but right-sized kind of for us, uh, we had a wide array of different partners that were signed on to support the program. And, uh, but, uh, but our grant was not selected. Uh, we are still waiting to hear on the second wave of grant applications, which was uh, you could apply for anywhere from a quarter million dollars up to 5 million. Uh, we are still in that, but, but we'll wait and see. But with the announcements yesterday, okay, so they put out this call for grants um, earlier this spring for a billion dollars worth of grants. And yesterday they awarded $3.7 billion worth of projects because when they put out the call for grants, they figured, yeah, they'd have a good chunk of projects. I had talked to, um, I'd talked to some of my, my connections in DC and asked them, you know, how many projects are you guys looking at funding? And the answer was maybe 35 to 40, maybe 45 projects. Well, they had over 400 applications and $20 billion worth of projects. So they increased the pool. I believe the funding was allocated in the, um, in the uh, recently passed um, inflation bill. I believe that's where the, the financing came from, but uh, they upped the, the, allotment from a billion to 3.7 billion just for the first tranche of projects. And I assume they'll allocate at least another half a billion, maybe even a billion dollars to the second tranche of uh, smaller projects. Maybe not quite that much, but it, it'll still be a lot for sure. And um, uh, which I think is good. I think it's good that they are trying to utilize more of these good ideas and let the free market go and figure this out and utilize the good ideas, try to try to uh, get as many of them out there as possible. Uh, they funded 70 different projects. Um, maybe we can find the, the list of those for you all as well. One of the projects that we're named on um, is being led by TrueTerra um, from Land Lakes. So excited about that. Um, we might have Brad on here. If we can, um, Brad, maybe we'll uh, get you in. Um, get you in here and you can provide an update from the event that you were at today. But Brad represented Continuum Ag up in Wisconsin today at an event that uh, I'm not sure if it was hosted by Land Lakes or who exactly it was hosted by, but, uh, but Land Lakes invited us to, to attend and uh, Secretary Vilsack was up there talking about the, the grants and, uh, and doing a public appearance about 
climate smart ag and these climate smart commodities. So um, I haven't heard the full report yet, um, but Brad will, uh, maybe we can get Brad on and he can give, give more of the report here in a little bit. Um, what I think is interesting with these, here's a message from Brad. Brad, I think I can unmute you if you're, I think you're the called in one. Brad, check and see now. I think you might be able to unmute unmute yourself and it'll work. Maybe. Um, not sure. There, did it work? There we go. Hey, guys. Coming at you live from southern Minnesota here. Ah, good, good. Uh, well, we can hear you right now, Brad. So, um, Brad, was I explaining it right? Was the event put on by Land Lakes, or who actually put on the event? Who was there? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the event was pretty good, uh, well attended. They had kind of like a Q and A with Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, Secretary Vilsack, uh, beforehand, and then he basically uh, gave a press conference at uh, one of the Winfield sites, but it was hosted by Land Lakes. So like the big sign there was Land Lakes, but most all of the people who were representing uh, was from True Terra. So I hung out with a lot of the True Terra gang. Um, the on the um, I guess the program as far as the the people uh, representing a, a continuum included uh, included like John Deere. Um, there's a whole bunch of different companies that are going to be part of this. So that that's kind of what the event was for was to to just kind of introduce it but it turns out that the true terra one is almost uh like the ideal i guess usda flagship uh um program and so basically the sentiment coming out of today is it's this is no longer going to be theoretical after this five years we're going to have a carbon market and so it's just a matter of, of figuring out how to navigate these waters a lot of trial and error these next five years, throwing a bunch of money at it. But the the sentiment is that it's no longer going to be, well, if this comes to fruition, it's just a matter of when it comes to fruition at this point. So at least that's, that's the goal of the program and, and a lot of optimism in the room for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so it was just like highlighting this grant, like the, just this project. Oh, you cut out there. What was that, Mitchell? Sorry, yeah. Was it it was only highlighting this one project, or did they talk about some of the other ones too? Well, they talked about uh this one in particular, but the the key thing that Bill Sack was hitting on was all this money is going towards twenty to twenty-five million acres total. And they were hoping for fifty million credits available after five years. And so if you do the math, that's pretty much just a, a, a four-tenths of a ton of carbon per acre per year is what it ends up being. And so um, all of it, it, I think not just the True Terra, but the, everyone included 20 to 25 million acres is what they're shooting for. And so, I mean, it, it's obviously significant considering there's 320 million row crop in the U.S. And so it's a, it's a good chunk. A lot more than the four percent, Mitchell, of what you were talking about earlier. So we'll yeah. see if that actually happens because the one thing that everyone fails to talk about is 
how are you going to incentivize the farmers? So like, there's a bunch of money out there and yeah, obviously the 3.7 million or billion is a big number. No. Well, how much of that is actually going to incentivize the farmers? Because I mean, just looking around the room, there's a lot of red tape still. Yeah. And, and you expect that with any government program, but it'll be interesting to see if they're actually able to get farmers incentivized to do it because that's been been the real hiccup in all of this has been incentivizing the farmers to get it done. Yeah, interesting. Because my take on it, you know, it has been that farmer, like there is money out there in existing cost share programs and uh, in, in these carbon programs and whatnot. Like there's dollars out sure. there to incentivize farmers to change. But the biggest thing that they need is how do they do it? And and the education yeah. pieces, I believe that was a pretty big chunk of Land O'Lakes' project and, and I think a pretty good chunk of a lot of the other projects too. What was the take on educating and, and getting people to understand how to do these things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that coupled with the measurement verification piece, that was the big thing that Vilsack uh, hit on quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, a large portion of True Terra's um, program is going to be the education piece. Um, yeah, because at, at the end of the day, farmers. Might have lost you. Um, I think we lost you there, Brad. But yeah, I mean, the, the education piece is just so important within this of that there's so few people that know how to do this. And I know a lot of you guys that are listening in have are going down this journey and know how hard it is. And uh, in an order for the 96% of farmers who aren't doing cover crops to figure out how to do them and how to do them successfully and how to not lose money in order to be able to make that really happen, we're going to have a big, you know, education uh, initiative that, uh, that we're going to have to go and, and, you know, implement and, and figure out. So uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot, of you know it's gonna be a lot of work there to be able to to make sure that everybody is confident knows how to go about this uh it's gonna be a big undertaking but um but interesting to there the refi movement i'm not sure exactly uh the fight regenerative finance movement and stuff oh the eco credits and all that i love the uh carbon offsets for the emissions from the treasury printing press that is painfully accurate but yes um there's a lot of carbon going up in the atmosphere uh which is okay with me for right now because my cover crops need a lot of uh carbon to keep pulling that down and keep feeding my microbes my microbes are very hungry so um that uh, co2 being up there uh just more that we can go and capture and pull down into our soils but um but yeah no so eco credits there's you know, carbon credits, they, the USDA at one point, Vilsack at one point was really pushing on putting carbon credits on the board of trade. Um, it seems like that talk has backed off by quite a bit. You know, I think, I think the government's understanding that these things are not very well defined yet and the marketplace are not very well defined and, and creating these credits is definitely not well defined. Um, so probably a very smart thing to not attempt to, uh, standardize everything yet, or, or as far as put it on a board of trade and try to put money into something that isn't necessarily developed. So it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this progresses and if any groups can really come with something that is 
productive. Um, I think it boils back to show us how to actually quantify our stinking carbon footprint and reward farmers in terms of the further that they go, the more that they do, the more that they contribute, the more they get paid. That would enable innovation to be the driver. That would enable, uh, you know, aggression to be rewarded. That would enable, you know, that, that farmer innovation to really take hold and that creativity, which is what's made American agriculture, American agriculture and, and why farmers are farmers is they're innovative. We figure things out and we learn and, and we are competitive. Um, and I think we've got to ensure that carbon or other ecosystem service markets are more you do, the more you can get paid, uh, the more outcome that, that you can get, the more dollars you can put in your pocket. So uh, that's what I'm definitely really trying to push to to enable, but we got a long way to go. And um, and the money needs to start flowing in order to get these things to work and to try stuff and learn and screw things up, but learn from those mistakes and, and adjust and change over time. And I just haven't seen enough companies really changing over time and um uh haven't seen them really you know uh uh haven't seen them learning from those mistakes and stuff here quite yet so um we'll see if we get uh get brad back we we lost him there um we got you you can hear me brad i have one very important last last question for you why didn't you tell my neighbor? Why didn't you tell my neighbor old Tommy that he uh what he why you didn't help out the Southeast Iowa guys and, and get us a grant? Uh, you know, I think he whispered in my ear that it's coming, Mitchell. I think oh, that's, okay. that's, that's good. What, that's good. That's what I so. <laughs> he goes, I'm saving extra money in the back for you guys. You guys are actually gonna figure out <laughs> exactly. That. <laughs> it's already earmarked Mitchell. So we're go. good to there go. go. <laughs> um, no, thanks, Brad. Thanks for, for going up there and, um, and for, yeah, for providing some thoughts here. Um, okay. Here's a, here's a good question. Okay. What are your thoughts on how this, the massive infusion of money into these climate smart projects could cause tonal vision where we get distracted as an industry from other issues in ag and food related to sustainability and regen. It's not just carbon. I think that's super spot on. It is not all about carbon. Carbon's the big talk right now. It's, you know, obviously being very fueled by the climate push and uh, and the focus on climate being just circled around carbon when really we should be looking at water vapor and we should be looking at you know, nitrous oxide as a greenhouse gas is 300 times more potent than CO2. Um, it, the biggest carbon, the biggest piece of the carbon footprint for a bushel of corn is actually from the fertilizer. About 70% of a bushel's carbon footprint comes from the synthetic fertilizer. And um, the, just so many of those pieces, I mean, the, yeah, the, the water cycle definitely not working correctly. And, uh, and as we're getting to the field here now, and harvesting, our yields are off about 10, maybe even closer to 15% right now, 20%. And, um, you know, we had eight tenths of an inch of rain, or sorry, four tenths of an inch of rain over an eight week period this summer, super dry. And uh, luckily, we've been able to build up our soils, be more resilient. The corn that we were in today, um, we're still doing 198 bushel, which I'm super thankful for. But I mean, it should be 
240 to 260 bushel corn. Um, I mean, I'll take 198. Poor Iowa farmer, you know, complaining about getting 198 bushel the acre, but uh, you know, I, I would have loved to have seen it be be more, but just didn't have the rain this year. Um, luckily, we're going with the ultra low cost production route here. It's non BT corn. It's only got about 140 units of nitrogen on it. No other synthetic fertilizer. Very low um, pesticide input. And, um, and it's really paying off. And to be able to still make 198 bushel with very little moisture, um, I, I suppose it's, it's still a good win. And uh, making money with no crop insurance, with no federal handouts, with no, uh, you know, with, with no burden on the taxpayer, that's what we want to be able to do. Um, I was just doing right before hopping on this. Uh, our office here in Washington is, is on the town square. And right across, um, right across the river. do not know what happened there. Sorry about that. So, um, anyway, here we go. Um, sorry about that, everyone. So, um, the farmer's market going on right across the road and, um, here we go. The, uh, we were selling some of our open pollinated corn. We have a, a bloody butcher, red corn, super dark red corn. And we've got a yellow corn uh, called lemon drop, a very uh, golden kind of uh, almost orange color. Really cool looking. The red and yellow together for my Iowa State Cyclones, of course. And uh, so we're it's our first time ever doing some of this open pollinated uh, heritage corn. And, and we've dulled some of it up as decorative corn, selling it by the bundle. And uh, we're selling loose ears as well, just literally selling corn by the ear uh, to folks that are attending the farmer's market and um, just trying to get creative, you know, and thinking outside the box, working direct to consumer, although this is, this is um, you know, just trying to get creative and, and to do things differently, especially, um, you know, to be able to have, be able to have that story and telling people about regenerative ag as they come up to the booth and telling people that, Hey, this is, you know, heritage corn, non-GMO open pollinated food grade. And we're going to be milling some of it into flour and cornmeal here this winter. There's uh, potential to make bourbons and whiskeys and beer and stuff out of, out of these corns, especially the red uh, bloody butcher corn. Um, we could still feed it to pigs if we wanted to, or still do other things um, in the market, but you know, trying, uh, trying all kinds of different stuff here, um, thinking outside the box and, and trying to be creative to make this stuff really work. So um, what do we got? Uh, Keith, 
Uh, yeah, less water, regenerative soil is more efficient. So it does more with the water you have, even when it's less water. That's spot on, Keith. And exactly what we were seeing this year, you know, you and I have chatted about it before. Really, really interesting to be able to drive around the neighborhood and see our fields um, in comparison to our neighbor's fields. A lot of our neighbors are no-till, um, but not necessarily fully doing everything exactly, um, you know, the way that we would do them. There is plenty of tillage around us as well. And our crops were absolutely hanging on better than those neighbors fields here this year where we had very little rain. We're absolutely seeing that our roots are getting down deeper. We don't have those plow pans anymore. We don't have those, those compaction layers. Those roots are super deep down in that soil, finding the moisture. And, uh, and it definitely still hurt us. I mean, we don't have the yield there that we want. Like I said, we're probably 20% at least off of where we want to be, but we're not a complete failure and we're not 50% off of where we want to be or worse. Um, like I think a lot of, a lot of the countryside is going to be here this year. And we could just see our systems working correctly. That rain that we got in the early part of the year, we infiltrated the average water infiltration around the country is a half of an inch of rainfall per hour. And on our farm, we can do four inches of rainfall infiltration in less than five minutes. And so we don't have runoff anymore. We don't have, our terraces are completely worthless and in our other systems, we have them there just in case. Um, we have them there because we built those things before we started doing these practices. We've only been using cover crops since 2013 and really only intensely using them since 2016. So we've, uh, you know, we've been able to make some major changes in the last couple of years. And, and especially in a year like this, it's really paying off. And where we are pushing to use no federal crop insurance, uh, we've got to make sure that our systems are going to be resilient and that really shine through here this year. So I'm um, happy for it. Like I said, got to complain that it wasn't even better because I'm, a, you know, uh, being in Iowa, we got to complain anytime it's not, you know, 260 bushel. But, um, but it's still, you know, it's, it's about profit at the end of the day. It's not about yield. It's about profit. It's about being resilient. It's about enabling the natural system to work effectively. And we're absolutely seeing that. And, uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the crop that we're going to get into um, over the, over the rest of the harvest season here, we've got some good stuff out there. The soybeans look amazing as well. So, and um, so that kind of ties in with, with the next question here from Jay about, um, harvesting cereal rye and, uh, you know, when can we plant it? And uh, good question, Jay. So, uh, we've been doing a lot of relay cropping over the last couple of years. So we plant a lot of cereal rye following corn ahead of our soybeans. This is baby step number one, when going down, uh, the regen path and using cover crops, cereal rye ahead of soybeans or a cereal crop of some kind. Cereal rye is just the main one that uh, that most folks use. We've been using it now for multiple years, really like it. And uh, what we do typically is that we drill in our cereal rye after harvesting corn. Uh, we're actually rigging up a vertical till machine with a Montag air delivery system here this year. We had an old vertical till. It's one of the old style, the gangs don't rotate or nothing. Basically gonna do the exact same thing as our drill, uh, but rigging that up to be able to put on cover crop. And uh, it's got two different um, bins on it. So we can put uh, micronutrients or fertilizer in one of them and cover crop seed in the other, or we could do large seeds in one and small seeds in the other and, and make sure that we are 
getting the rates and everything that we want. So going to be playing around with the vertical till here um, this fall and seeding our cover crop that way. In order to uh, to harvest, I've actually interseeded cereal rye that I've harvested before. Um, it was interseeded into 60-inch corn on uh, early June, and it, it worked fine. Even that early June stuff, it was seeded early. Um, it By the next spring, it was like a bunch of grass out there. I mean, some of those had 40 tillers on them, 40 heads on one plant, and, uh, and it, it was it was way taller than my late planted stuff. You could definitely really see them. Um, and there was a lot of seed on those really early planted stuff. Now there wasn't a ton of them. Cereal rye is a cool season grass. It did not do that well as a interseeded cover crop. Um, but the, the bit of rye that did work, um, it, it looked pretty good and, and harvested along with the rest of our fall seeded rye. And, uh, and it's all relay cropped and harvested and, it was growing out there uh, last winter, but usually what we do is just put out the cereal rye into those corn stalks anytime in the fall. And, um, you know, we'll be doing that stuff right now. It's definitely not too early. Like I said, I've done it in June. If you're seeding rye now or have already got it seeded, it'll definitely be fine. It'll just tiller out more. I don't know that it's going to impact maturity that much based on when you get it planted in the fall or in the year before um, it's going to, you know, it's going to die back a little bit over the winter time and uh, kind of go into a bit of a hibernative state, of course, over the winter and then green up in the spring, take off and, uh, and then get to maturity by planting it early. Maybe you can speed up maturity a little bit, but um, in my experience, nothing, I haven't seen any extremes of that anyway. Uh, what we like to do is uh, with our cereal rye, we're typically applying about 60 pounds per acre is all uh, when we're doing the relay cropping or when we're harvesting the rye. If I'm doing just a regular cereal rye cover crop ahead of beans, usually I'm around 45 pounds or so. We've continued to increase our rates a little bit, uh, but I still like relatively light rates of cereal rye. And the reason for that is well, I'm seeding the rye right now in the fall, maybe fairly early. Like right now, it's going to be able to tiller out a little bit, get pretty good fall growth here. We got a lot of days in Southeast Iowa where, where we can still grow that fall cover crop. In the spring, we'll drill soybeans directly into it. Uh, we started this year, um, something like April 22nd or 23rd or something like that. Uh, kind of mid-April, mid to late part of April, uh, we start planting and uh, we go to the fields with soybeans first. We're putting soybeans into that cereal rye when it's only maybe 10, 12 inches tall. It's pretty small at that point. And uh, drill the soybeans in. They're all naked soybeans, no seed treatments, um, no nothing. And uh, no fertilizer, no anything. We just put the soybeans out there and let them get up and going so they can compete with the rye. And because it's light rate of rye and early planted soybeans, we're seeing that those beans don't necessarily get too rank. They don't get tall and, and try to reach for the sunlight too much and then lodge. Uh, they're able to compete really well. Um, instead of terminating our cover crop, like we typically do uh, for our operation, we typically terminate with a herbicide in late May, about a month to six weeks after planting our soybeans into the rye. Uh, we have done the roller, the roller crimping as well. I worked with Rick who taught me that you can roller crimp when the beans are between V1 and V3, and you can roller crimp that rye. The beans will, will lay down and they'll cut, pop right back up and uh, you can crimp the rye over. Uh, I did some of it a couple of years ago. It worked really well. The beans still made 70 bushel. They were within one bushel of my non-crimped soybeans, uh, but I saved the herbicide and uh, it worked pretty well. 
Now I'm using light rates of rye. So the crimping was only maybe 75 okay. or 80% effective. Um, so it was fine, but in order to roller crimp successfully, you, you need to have a little bit heavier rates of cover crop to be able to get a good mat and get a good crimp on it. Um, but anyway, so uh, what we typically are doing though with the relay cropping is put the beans in in late April, 1st of May, then come back in July and harvest the rye over the top of the soybeans. The beans are out there growing right now. They look great. We'll come in a couple of weeks and harvest some beans. The key with relay cropping um, in that manner is that you got to use really full season soybeans. And uh, this year we have a lot of 4-0 maturity beans. Like those suckers are green right now. They're just starting. A couple leaves are starting to turn yellow, um, but they are super green yet. Big lima beans in there still. And, uh, uh, but that was by, that was by design. You know, we wanted the really full season, use these late season rains. Uh, we're playing with the photo period when we're doing relay cropping. That's the purpose for using the full season soybeans. And uh, we harvested 30 bushel beans shooting for, or sorry, we harvested 30 bushel rye. We're shooting for at least 70 bushel soybeans. Um, a lot of these, I think we can be 80 bushel or, or more, and they have nothing on them. They've got one pass of, of a herbicide that we did hit the field with after we harvested the rye because dad loves nice, clean, pretty fields. Um, but no fertilizer, no nothing, naked seed. There is very low, uh, very, very few costs in this and, uh, and looking at some major revenue um, by harvesting both crops off the same acre in the same year really maximizes the soil health gains as well. It's amazing to see the legume and the grass work together and uh, seeing some huge gains from that. So um, yeah, uh, to uh, some of the, the chat here. Yeah. Seeing, you know, the fungal healthy soil moving that water better, that earthworm activity, you know, trading those channels and stuff to get that water down into the soil in the early part of the year to absolutely working correctly. Thoughts on fungicide application? Does it affect soil health and, and fungus? Uh, black tar, or yeah, tar spot was bad last year. Want to know uh, what, our, what our thoughts are on fungicides? Great question. Okay. So on our farm, we, we're not to the point where Rick is. Okay. We're a conventional farm and selling conventional yellow number two corn and conventional soybeans. I mean, we are, we're very normal. We're just doing it all with a regenerative mindset, no-till cover crops, reducing inputs, reducing our synthetics. We've cut by about 75%, but we haven't cut all the way. We are still using some fungicide, not on everything. We've been cutting back and trying to keep cutting more and more. Uh, but we do have tar spot this year, really bad. It's it's fairly hybrid specific, it looks like, um, and it's field by field specific. Um, it looks like it's shutting things down here at the end, maybe causing some of that lack of, of top end yield. Um, but the corn's still standing really well. You know, the tar spot is very prevalent. You see it all over the place. But um, to what extent is it necessarily hurting yield? I don't really know. But um, uh, like I said, we've got fungicide on it. It's maybe slowing down a little bit, but obviously not stopping it. Um, not seeing a lot of the other diseases, like everything looks really good. The crop looks good. Um, you know, there for a while, it was Goss's will and Northern leaf blight and, and uh, gray leaf spot and all kinds of stuff, you know, that we've, we've always battled. And it seems like a lot of those things are not necessarily big problems on our farm anymore, but now this new, uh, you know, new disease coming in, this tar spot. Um, definitely really hitting us. Um, so something we're going to have to keep battling. 
Um, now, my thoughts on fungicide, obviously, it, it probably is hurting our, our soil microbiome. I mean, it's a fungicide. I mean, it's literally there to kill fungus. And we need to get those fungal communities built up in our soil. And I'm sure I'm knocking them back when I use fungicides. Um, I'm trying to cut back. I'm trying to not necessarily use them. But uh, and I think over time, as we keep building up you know, a good balanced soil program and, and make the nutrients cycle correctly and get our plant health correct and get our bricks levels up is something we've really been trying to push on when we can get those things to work correctly. I think we can hopefully get fully away from fungicides, but um, at this point, you know, it's, we've still got the tools in the toolbox. We don't want to use them. um, But my thought is, you know, for these negatives that we use on our farm that knock our soil health backwards, we want to do a lot of good things that move our soil health in the right direction. So hopefully at least our trajectory is still going up. Although, you know, we're definitely knocking ourselves back and we've got to keep, keep building up. Um, But it's a journey here and we've got a long, long way to go. And uh, luckily I've hopefully got a lot of years ahead to keep working on this and, and uh, keep attaining those goals. But um, you know, I, I think, it's all about balance here. And that's this whole soil health movement. It, it boils down to creating balance and being able to, you know, try to work with mother nature as much as possible, try to not knock it back too much. Um, but be able to, you know, make sure that we're, um, doing the best that we can with the resource that we've got and know that it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a long time to be able to really get there on each of our, each of our farms and, um, continue to keep playing the game here. So, um, at the beginning, I said, I didn't want to necessarily just rant for an hour and I've pretty well done close to that, but, um, but this is fun. I mean, what, what other questions do we, do we have or, or thoughts from other people? Um, or I can definitely keep ranting on all kinds of different stuff here too. Um, um yeah, so. Uh, in the in the chat here, a single glyphosate application reduces the AMF colonization rates. AMF are buscule mycorrhizal fungi, um, reduces the colonization rates of crop plants by a quarter, 25% reduction. A fungicide application can half the population. I definitely believe it. I mean, uh, Roundup is Roundup, you know, glyphosate, it's the patent on it is a bacterial side. I mean, it definitely makes a ton of sense to me that it absolutely, you know, knocks those populations. Um, I'm surprised it doesn't knock them even more than, you know, even more than, than what, um, what we're saying there in the chat. Uh, it, it, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure. I mean, and I feel like I kind of see it too. And um, we got to get more diverse covers in there. We got to be able to, to uh, cut back on these things and, and let the natural system do its, do its thing. Um, like I said, I mean, I would, I'm, I'm trying and trying to get there. We've made some major progress, but we got a long, long way to go. And, um, um, trying to get some of these issues taken care of where we have all the, all of the, um, tools in the toolbox. One of the things that, uh, dad and I had an observation on here today, as we were harvesting corn on my, on my farm that I bought in 2017, uh, the only weeds that we really have out there now this year is is just foxtail uh, a couple of years ago it was water hemp giant ragweed tons of cockleburs those were the big um, weed issues and now it's we don't really have the broad leaves anymore now it's just the grass and definitely contribute a lot of that to 
the use of the cereal rye, suppressing that using the, uh, you know, controlling the carbon to nitrogen ratio and uh, probably using some of that aliopathic effect to keep those small seeds at bay. Um, so it definitely looks like it's working. We're getting those seed banks worked down and, uh, and working ourselves closer to being able to make transitions like, you know, get away from Roundup, get away from fungicide, maybe go to organic. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the future is going to hold yet, but uh, we're trying to be systematic here and, and playing the long game. Although we might be, you know, leaving some short-term financials on the table. Um, but, you know, being seventh generation, our, our family is uh, next year will be 150 years that we've been farming here in Washington County, Iowa. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to play with the mindset of the next 150 years and, and, and more. Um, we got a long way to go, uh, but it's exciting and a lot of opportunity there, but that's why, that's why I want to keep learning and keep working with uh, folks like all of you that are on the call and working with guys like Rick um, who are crushing it and really getting it figured out and, and who have the, the guts to go for it and to figure this out and uh, to be kind of the trailblazer that the rest of us can, can learn from and uh, try to learn uh, and, and learn alongside each other as we go down this, this journey. So, but um, what else we got? Um, any other, any other final thoughts and stuff, put them in the, put them in the chat. We won't, um, won't keep people for too terrible long here, but a um, couple other thoughts, you know, um, from my side, things that are, that are going through my mind, um, you know, definitely, you know, uh, gearing up here for this fall season, a lot of Haney testing going on. A lot of people looking at, you know, should we be doing some carbon testing as well? Uh, we've, we've currently now in our, in our software platform topsoil, uh, we, we now have built up a footprint of 38 States and 16 countries, um, over 820,000 acres in the platform. Now, the last I looked, um, really interesting to see this, this network continue to grow, and uh, this regenerative movement is absolutely continuing to pick up speed and um, and sometimes utilizing that data, you know, is a good way to track and be able to to fine tune and, and help each of us go further faster. We're doing a lot of data work on our stuff. And um, uh, yeah, the update on the Haney test with more ecosystem services. Um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you're getting out there. Maybe, maybe help provide a little bit more color, but a couple, couple of thoughts, at least on that, you know, the Haney soil health test is, um, is the tool that we've really liked using, um, on average, it's helped our farmers cut their fertilizer by up to $112 and 42 cents per acre is the average. And, uh, we can absolutely reduce, you know, when we are looking at, uh, what's fully available in the soil. And as you go down the regenerative pathway, more and more of the nutrients are in the organic form, not just in the inorganic form, like we were all taught. And uh, what we're seeing is that organic form is super important. That's why we're able to grow, you know, 190 bushel corn or better with only 140 units of nitrogen or less. Some of the stuff we were in yesterday, there's a lot of corn that was doing over 200 unit, 200 bushels of corn, and it only had 90 pounds of applied nitrogen to it. So very, very little um, and utilizing the organic nitrogen that's in those soils to be able to feed that crop. The Haney test enables us to calculate and quantify those nutrients that are available. And uh, we built the algorithms and uh, the, the calculations are, are within topsoil now to turn that 
soil test into a variable rate precision application, a, a shape file that, uh, that you can go and make the applications and, and put it to practice on your farm. Uh, the Haney test is uh, in terms of ecosystem service outcomes. I like using the Haney test as a leading indicator to some of those environmental outcomes. Okay, so how I'm looking at it from a carbon perspective, carbon is, you know, the soil organic carbon is what the companies are looking to pay for that sequestered, stable, more permanent type of carbon. That's what they're ultimately attempting to, to pay us for. That soil organic carbon is 58% of the organic matter on average. Okay, organic matter is 58% carbon. Organic matter is 90% microbial necromass. Okay, 90% dead microbes, basically. And we can quantify microbial activity with the Haney test, the CO2 burst. We can at least to give us an indicator of microbial activity. So the more microbial activity, the more we can build up organic matter because it's 90% microbial necromass. Well, how do we build microbial activity and build microbes? Well, we got to feed them and they eat water extractable organic carbon, the liquid carbon that's coming from living roots and plant root exudates. That's what microbes eat for the most part. And, uh, and the more photosynthesis we can have occurring, the more liquid carbon we can get in the ground, the more microbes we can build up, the more organic matter comes as a result, and the more carbon we sequester and uh, can potentially get paid for um, by offsetting other folks' carbon footprint. So um, like I said, I like that Haney test being that leading indicator. Really interesting to see what, um, what Dr. Haney and company have been doing in terms of looking at that Haney test as being an indicator for water quality metrics uh, with some of their new measures that they have now. Um, some metrics around you know, their regenerative verified calculations and such um, that, uh, that Dr. You know, Rick and Liz Haney are, are really um, rolling out here now. Uh, just looking at you know the ability to to put some metrics behind this, so all of us can tell our story to the consumer and tell our story into the uh, into the supply chain and such. So, but again, I, I like the Haney test as being that early leading indicator and uh, where we can combine together the soil metrics and biological metrics and create a precision ag recommendation coming off of those, so all of us know how to implement on our farms and utilize the uh, technology. A um, couple of questions here. That's great. Uh, what covers do you use after soybeans and before corn? Um, since we're doing such long season soybeans, this is literally something that dad and I were talking about today. We're like, do we call in the drone? Do we get these flown on? What are we going to do? Because these beans are super green. So uh, what we per what we typically have been doing is that we will wait harvest the beans, and then drill in cereal rye with hairy vetch and potentially a clover like crimson clover or sweet clover. That's what we've been doing the last couple of years. It's worked pretty darn well. Usually we've got to have the, the legumes in by October 10th or so, maybe October 12th or 15th, um, but we like to have them in before October 10th. And, uh, and they've been overwintering pretty well. Hairy vetch has worked really well for us. It'll overwinter. It'll keep growing in the summer or sorry, keep growing the next spring and get us some nitrogen. We really feel like it's it's getting us some benefit. What we're looking at doing here, because these beans are so full season and so green yet that we are 
definitely not going to be in there and harvesting until maybe right around that October 10th timeframe. It's going to be pushing it. We're looking at bringing in their drone. Uh, we've been working with Rantizo for multiple years and uh, looking at bringing in the drone to fly on some of those small seeds, probably hairy vetch, um, maybe a couple other things. If we're flying it on this early, maybe we can do some radishes or something like that as well. Get some brassicas in there. Rapeseed has worked really well for us, um, especially ahead of corn. Um, so there's a couple of different options, um, but probably, you know, looking at flying on some of those small seeds and then we'll harvest the beans and then we'll go in and drill in uh, some more rye um, because we do want that cereal crop in there as well. And uh, because of the volume that we need to get on of the cereal, we don't want to fly it on. We want to fly on the small seeded stuff where we can cover a lot of acreage and be cost effective. And then we'll drill in the, the more high volume seeds like the cereal rye drill that in later um the the other issue right now that's really holding this up is we're super dry and if we fly on that cover right now our soybeans are just starting to turn yellow they're a little ways away from dropping leaves so it's probably a little bit early in terms of you know the maturity level of the soybeans and in that new cover crop you know being able to get some seed to soil contact and being able to to get some sunlight and get going but the bigger issue being the moisture we can we can uh, put on a cover crop but if it doesn't have moisture it's not going to grow it's not going to do anything so um we're trying to balance that i don't know exactly what's going to happen yet you know if we can catch some rains um you know there's a good chance we'll we'll bring in the drone um but it's got to have rain to be able to make it work um if we don't get it we'll still likely get some of the hairy vetch at least on with our cereal rye with our um, vertical till air seeder rig. Um, and the key thing for all this is we're waiting in the spring, planting soybeans first, waiting to plant our corn later. And, uh, and then that lets the legume grow more in the springtime and actually get us some nitrogen benefit. So we're trying, we're playing with it. Um, the other big thing with this is that because we're putting our soybeans into such big cereal rye and letting the cereal rye go to full maturity before we terminate it, we're seeing now an over a 100 unit nitrogen credit following our soybeans. And it's in the organic form. Okay. So over a hundred, we're seeing up to 120 units of organic nitrogen in just the top six inches following our soybeans. Okay. So I'm not necessarily getting the diversity of the legumes and the other things, bursting clover, phacelia, I see the, the comments stuff here, uh, you know, great ideas. Um, I honestly, I, we used a little bit of bursting clover maybe a couple of years ago in our interseeded stuff. And one of my customers used some phacelia, uh, but I have not used it directly. Um, I, I'm not sure uh, on if that would work at this time of the year or not. Um, maybe some other folks have experience um, doing that. I've only seen it um, seeded as an interseeded cover in June. Um, so maybe, maybe other folks have, have some thoughts on that one, but, um, the, uh, basically, like I said, I'm, I'm sacrificing my ability to get really diverse covers in there because of my geography and my ability to get them to, to give me some benefit. And I'm enabling my soybeans to kind of fill that gap for me and, uh, and forcing them to get me more of that organic nitrogen to uh to supplement my corn crop the following year so i can keep cutting back so um but anyway so some good thoughts there um so it'll be mostly cereal rye that we grew ourselves with hairy vetch out of the corn just cereal rye out of the soybeans and uh you know and just trying to keep experimenting the other option 
um, is that we'll, we won't put on the legume here this fall, but we could frost seed crimson clover or something similar in the spring. We did some of that a couple of years ago in our malt barley and it worked pretty well. So maybe that's an option is wait and uh, put on the legume next spring um, early before planting so we can let it get going then and um, and potentially only burn down the cover crop with a grass selective herbicide. We've tried a little bit of that a couple of years ago with clethodim. Um, it was okay, but uh, maybe we can get more creative in, in that manner. So um, another question here, to create your precision application map, what Haney sampling do you need? Soil type zone, certain size grid. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that we built now within our topsoil platform is we utilize soil type and slope and elevation. We run machine learning on it and it showcases the field variability and gives us zones. Depending on the variability of the farm and of the fields, we change the zone size. So if you have big fields that don't have a lot of variability, we don't have to have 10 acre zones, like is our default. Um, but if you've got a lot of variability or got small fields, we might need some smaller zones to be able to manage effectively. So um, it depends, but on average, uh, we typically aim for a 10 acre zone. And, uh, and in doing that, we can be cost effective and, um, and make that Haney test really pay and um, be able to get really good ROI. Um, so that's how we do it anyway. Um, lots of different, lots of different ways, but happy to, uh, to dig deeper into that. Um, and there's more info on our website and stuff too, but um, thoughts on wheat after corn or is the seed end ratio not in favor of the system? One to have more summer annuals for the mix with cattle, never tried winter wheat after corn. That's a good question. Uh, we had winter wheat a couple years ago um, after corn and after soybeans. Um, you know, it, it, it would be pretty similar to the rye, I would think. You know, you're definitely going to have some potential for some CDN ratio issues. That, that wheat or rye is definitely not going to be anything crazy in terms of yield by any stretch of the, of the uh, imagination. But, uh, you know, maybe that's where you can use a little bit of, of liquid nitrogen in the spring, maybe some dry like AMS or something like that um, in the springtime as well to help get that wheat up and going. Uh, we've been playing around with sugars and stuff as well. You can use Humix. There's a variety of different things, compost teas and all kinds of stuff, of course, um, to give that wheat a little bit of a boost in the spring. Um, I don't know that I would put on any this fall. I would let that wheat try to scavenge and try to get um, whatever nitrogen is left over from that corn crop, depending on what rainfall you've had and depending on your nitrogen, of course, it's always a, you know, it's always a, a answer of it depends, but um, you know, I, I like the idea to be able to get a, a cereal crop back into the rotation. The yield might not be amazing, but it does open up for you that ability to put in the diverse cover crop, like what you're thinking, and then go to corn the year after that. The other thought being, you know, if you do have soybeans, um, you know, that you could put in the, the wheat or rye or whatever, following the soybeans, harvest that next year, and then put in the diverse cover and then go back to corn. But I could see, you know, where you're looking at your crop rotation and stuff like that. And that can, can throw things out, but um a couple different options there, I suppose. But, but like I said, I mean, I would be definitely be looking at, you know, potential for a little bit of nitrogen on the, on the wheat or on the rye. Um, the most that we've done in our relay cropping, because we're, we're harvesting rye that was planted into, into corn stalks. So that's, that's the context of my answer here. Uh, the most that we've done 
is put on um, up to a hundred pounds of AMS. Um, this year we only had 25 pounds of AMS on our rye and uh, yielded 30 bushel. It's nothing crazy. I'm sure if we pushed it, we could get 45 or 50 bushel, but for us, 30 bushel rye with hardly any expenses into it. Uh, you know, right now it's worth $17 a bushel. Um, so it's, uh, it's a good little bonus for us. So, uh, wheat, the comment there, uh, wheat works after corn. If you plant wheat with a diverse mix of temporary companion crops to get winter killed, feeding the wheat in the spring, that's a great idea. Uh, maybe some oats or something there. The oats are going to grow a little faster. They're going to die off. If you want another grass in there, absolutely opportunity for other legumes that would be able to get some nitrogen going for that wheat. That's a great idea. Or back to the brassicas or some of these other things that are going to help to cycle P and K and other nutrients as well. Um, companion cropping it like that. I think just anytime that we can get more diversity in the system, of course, is great and always an excellent rule of thumb. Um, potential for that in the spring, actually. So what we did a couple of years ago when we had uh, barley, we had barley that was drilled in in the fall. And then in the spring, we overseeded crimson clover. I think it was out maybe three or four pounds per acre, maybe five, um, but just a couple pounds of crimson clover in the spring into that barley. And then uh, that barley provided, or that that uh, crimson clover provided some of the cover or some of the nitrogen for that barley. So that was interesting. And then when we harvested, we just kept the header a little bit high. Uh, crimson clover doesn't get that big. And even if we harvested some of it, it wouldn't really matter. I think we can blow a lot of those seeds out the back. Um, wouldn't be a big deal anyway. But um, uh, but if you are concerned about contamination and stuff of seeds, you can just keep the header high and harvest over the top, um, at least in my um, in my experience there. Yeah, lupins, phacelia, fava, fava beans, clover, radish, no more than two pounds per acre of brassicas. Yeah, definitely. Don't go super heavy on the brassicas this time of year. Um, I don't know that it's going to hurt you too terrible bad, you know, and take over. Um, but obviously, depending on where you're at in the world, though, um, here too. But yeah, brassicas can really get wild and take over and and uh, dominate everything if you're not too uh, uh, if you're not careful. So, um, yeah, Kenton uh, talking about you know up there, he's Kenton's up in Idaho. And uh, wheat after corn with irrigation, 120 bushel county average on wheat. Um, and I think that's winter wheat. Um, Kenton, you'll have to, um, have to correct us. But um, yeah, 120 bushel winter wheat, you know, that's with irrigation, but uh, following that corn. So definitely big opportunity to, to really yield and, uh, and then open up that opportunity, like we said, for those diverse covers, get as much diversity into the system following that um, that's cereal crop that can come off early, hammer the soil with, you know, 15 or so different species of all kinds of different cover crops. And, uh, it really, just really, uh, jumpstart that system. Yeah. Winter wheat. Thanks, Kenton. Um, cool. Um, how do we combine buckwheat? I have not combined buckwheat, um, before, um, Lauren Steinluggy I know has, and, um, Eric Miller, um, I know has some in, uh, near Cascade, Iowa. Um, I don't know exactly. I don't want to, I don't want to get out over my skis on that. Uh, there's one for, yeah, strip, stripper head, uh, for the buckwheat. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I'm not sure. I, I would, like I said, refer you to, to some of those guys. Um, we've grown some buckwheat as an interseeded cover crop. It works really well. It grows super fast. 
flowers early, um, really great at cycling P and K, um, but I've never actually taken it all the way to harvest. So uh, uh, it's something that I definitely think is possible for our operation. It seems like it could be a good one. Um, you know, buckwheat that uh, could also be utilized for, uh, for food grade purposes as well, whether it be for buckwheat pancakes or for, uh, I know Eric, um, like I said, he's, he's got a pretty big field of it and Eric has a malting facility and it looks like they're going to be malting some of that buckwheat. Um, I believe it's gluten-free. So uh, they're looking at gr- uh, gluten-free beers and, and such. So uh, interesting new experiment. Um, obviously the jury's still out on, on how well it's going to work, but, um, you know, uh, Eric is at least doing it. And like I said, Lauren Steinlog has been using buckwheat for years. So a couple of different people to look at there. Um, okay. Any other thoughts, any, anything else? Campbell, you've been hanging out here with me. Campbell, one of my, uh, customer success, uh, leads here at continue mag from South Africa, anything we missed? I've had a heck. I think you nailed it pretty well. I've had I a heck just, of a rant here for a while, <laughs> Yeah, but it's, it's been it. fun. Hopefully, hopefully it's been, been a good for everyone. Rick said, Hey, come on. And it can be the, the Mitchell horror show here for a while. So, uh, but the comment there, buckwheat is grown. Oh, buckwheat is great grown after winter wheat together with millet and flax for animal feed mix. That's a great idea. So take the wheat off or rye or, or barley, whatever you're doing is that, you know, that cereal crop that can come off early part of the year and uh, yeah, grow all kinds of stuff together to, to feed Um, in the buckwheat too, for the pollinators. Like I said, it's a buckwheat uh, flowers extremely quickly grows really quickly. Um, so for pollinator blends or for getting those, um, those pollinators, those beneficials going another big opportunity there, but, um, yeah, grazing, um, as well, or, or, uh, animal feed chopping it off. So, uh, interesting, interesting, very frost sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, that buckwheat, a little sniff of frost and it's going to be done. Same thing as like cow peas. Um, in my experience, sun hemp as well, not a very, uh, frost tolerant. So, uh, so that's kind of the, um, the thought there on like, you know, not, I haven't, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody put buckwheat on in the fall, um, but because of the, um, you know, the lack of, of cold tolerance, uh, it doesn't have much of a window to really get going in the fall. So that's part of it. So yeah, definitely not, um, haven't seen it in the fall, but early or, uh, you know, planted in the spring or planted in the summer, uh, definitely some opportunity. So but early July in the comment. Yeah. Yeah. We've uh, ours was uh, ours was um, June first, maybe early part of the second week of June um, is when we've used it in the past. And um, I think Lauren has been doing some of his in July. Um, I think when he's done some of his, he'll do it with his relay crop where he'll harvest his cereal rye over the top of the soybeans. And then right after harvesting the rye, He'll seed in the buckwheat. So yeah, that would be uh, kind of that early July timeframe. Um, he might be doing some earlier than that and uh, interseeding it in the, into the soybeans earlier, but um, we'll have to uh, get the exact word on that from Lauren. So anyway, well, I don't know, Rachel, if we've still, still got you here too, but um, I think I'm probably over my time allotment, but uh but it's been fun. Thanks everyone for, for hanging out. We got a pretty, 
good crowd on here. And, uh, um, and unless anyone's got any other, any other thoughts, I can let you go. Um, maybe, uh, maybe a couple, um, parting thoughts. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're thinking of our buddy Rick here today. I appreciate, you know, Rick and, and Rachel, um, letting me the opportunity to come on and, and guest host here today, looking forward to doing it again and, uh, and bring on maybe some of the guests and stuff from my side here as well. Uh, Rick and I have done a couple different podcasts together. There's some recordings of, of us on the fieldwork podcast, also on my podcast. Um, fieldwork is one of them that I, that I co-host and uh, the topsoil podcast is, is my, um, uh, is my podcast. Um, so there's some episodes there of, of me and Rick digging into some of this. There's some stuff on there with Lauren as well. I mentioned him, um, and a bunch of other guests as well, but, but anyway, thanks guys for, for hanging out here tonight. It's been fun and, uh, I'll hit stop here and, uh, we'll see everyone again sometime soon. Good luck here with, with, um, harvest, uh, be safe. And we'll talk to everyone later.